Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. In today's episode, Steve Zavitz shares his passion for parkour photography and film, from his transition to freelancing, his process, and what he likes to create. He discusses the changing style and culture around parkour videos and the impact social media has had. Steve reflects on the evolving culture, audience, and growth of parkour and what that means for communities today. Before we dive in, I ask that you press pause and take a quick listener survey. It's one page, has only five questions, and will take you all of 10 seconds to complete. If this project is worth 10 seconds of your time, go to moversmindset.com slash survey. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. I'm Steve Zavitz. Steve Zavitz is an athlete, photographer, and cinematographer with particular focus on the parkour and movement world. He's worked with many parkour brands, including Scochipsticks, The Modus Projects, Strike Movement, and Tempest Free Running, among others. In addition to his freelance work, Steve creates his own work around parkour and its environment. Welcome, Steve. Great to be here, Craig. Steve, the first question I have for you is, I understand that at one point in the not-too-distant past, you had like a regular day job working for the man, so to speak, and... I know that you've managed to take the leap, and I don't know if it was a leap of faith or a leap of blindness, but you managed to make the leap into doing your own thing, working for yourself and creating your own way. Like, you know, if you don't do it, it doesn't turn into money kind of thing. And I think that's a really interesting topic. A lot of people who are passionate about parkour would love to know, all right, I have this job and I have this passion. Maybe it's teaching, maybe it's training, maybe it's athletic, whatever. And I'm wondering if you'd want to share some of your story, like how did you first visualize that it could be a thing that you could do? And then how did you, I don't know, did you make a safety? How did you actually make the leap? How did that work out? And maybe if you have any wisdom for people who would be considering doing it? Sure. Yeah. So this is my first full year. Actually, 2018 was my first full year of doing freelance. So my taxes are going to be a bit of a nightmare, but because uh, <laughs> it's 2019, sure, right? I'm sure you, uh, I'm sure you know about that, but yeah. So up until then, I'd been working in various jobs. I worked in catering for a bit. I was doing account management for a food-based startup. I was working in advertising as like an analytics guy. And before that, I was doing research. Um, but doing the the photo and video work was always actually in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved to the East Coast in 2011. I came out here to do research. That was kind of the, the goal was to get some experience doing uh, like neuroscience research and uh, cognitive science research. And the eventual goal was to go to, to school again and get a PhD and mm-hmm. then end up doing that track. But um, I've been doing parkour since 2008. So already kind of three years in, pretty deep. And I'd kind of made a name for myself sort of in the local community in Michigan where I'm from as the guy that took videos and, and photos of the community. But so that's I, purely as a side passion project. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was just with with parkour. I mean, I had some some experience doing photography, just kind of taking some street photography at my university and and doing some black and white stuff, but nothing super, super serious. But it was kind of just a thing where I had a camera, and it was early enough in the community where no one really had a camera. Mm. And no, if you, I'm curious, what camera did you have? Like, I just uh, not that I'm a camera geek, but just I had a, a Canon PowerShot A560, okay. which is a little point and shoot. Because I'm like, I had a PowerShot. In fact, I have a PowerShot still. But yes, okay, yeah, not I'm that, just curious I mean, where you started, right? But shot in four by three and four eighty p. It's mine so, I think I'm up to nine eighty or something. Right? So uh, I ended up <laughs> buying a, this. This like they, they had these cameras for a while before the DSLRs, like the T2i, mm-hmm. the Canon T2i took over. Um, that were like shaped in this weird they looked like a pistol grip sort of with a 
a screen that would flip out. So hmm. you'd hold it out like kind of like a gun, sort uh. of, and then you'd push the record button. Like the the screen would be on the the side of it. So I had one of those. I bought it for like eighty bucks on Amazon. It was a terrible camera. <laughs> so I bought that, and then I bought a, a fisheye adapter because it was too. It was like fifty millimeters, like some crazy. Oh, right. Like I couldn't see anything in frame. <laughs> so I got. I was like, I was so excited to shoot it, and I took it out, and I was like, I can't see. <laughs> it's like shooting through a tube, right? <laughs> so yeah. So I had to buy the the fisheye adapter or the wide angle adapter for it, and it was a terrible camera. I hated that camera so much. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to derail you. Okay, so so you have a junky camera, but you developed a reputation. But yeah. Right? So so I. Was was still like you know i'm gonna make more videos of this like I, the reason why i did it originally was because there was just such such a, a desert of content you know people didn't really know what michigan was up to because mm-hmm. no one had a camera and no one was filming anything so mm-hmm. i kind of just wanted to share my community and say like hey we're out here we're training and we had a michigan jam that happened but it was really just locals that came so that was sort of my way of showing the community like kind of around the nation what we're doing what, what our spots look like what our training sessions look like and inviting them to come train with us so it kind of just fell into place where it was uh, like right time, right place. I had the right gear, kind of. Right. Um, well, best you're, you're the person out in front with the best available gear, right? Yeah, and then when I graduated, I got a, a Canon T2i, which is kind of the same camera that most of the the parkour, the early parkour filmmakers had. That was like the classic, like right. the cheap, cheapish DSLR that does like kind of cinema quality or like higher quality interchangeable lens camera. So I got that when I graduated, and I moved to the East Coast. So I applied for jobs all over. I was Graduating in 2011, which is pretty bad time for the economy. So <laughs> I'm like doing the math. I'm like, oh, wait a second. This is 2011. You moved here in 2011? Ouch, right? Yeah, so not a good time for, for jobs, and especially not a good time for jobs in psychology, which is what I, um, what I studied. That was my concentration. So I applied for jobs all over, like Florida, Colorado, California. And the, uh, the only one that really stuck was New York. So mm. I decided, you know, whatever. Never been there before, so I'll move. And uh, in the back of my mind, it was like, you know what, I, I kind of really like doing this uh, parkour video stuff. So I'm going to keep doing this while I move, see where it goes. So for the f- first couple years when I was living in New Jersey and working in uh, Rockland County, I was just kind of doing my own thing. I was filming some community members like guys like Jesse Danger and Caitlin Pontrella and like Nikki Zanevsky, Mike Arugio, like all the kind of classic New York parkour athletes. And um, I kind of got a knack for it. And my first big break actually was uh, working with Tempest. So my name kind of got around. I'd been making videos for a while, like little compilation videos of my year in review, of my travels, of my training of friends. And um, I forget who it was. I think it was uh, Chris Wachtman. He was going by Spider back in the day. Someone had reached out to him because they were going to Virginia Tech to to film like a homecoming video. So mm-hmm. Paul Darnell back when he was still part of Tempest, which he's not anymore. Um, there's some drama around that, as some of you might what? know. Drama in parkour? I don't um, believe you. There's no drama in so, parkour. What are you talking about? So Paul, I think, had reached out to the community and said, hey, do you know any photographers or videographers that could come help film this mm-hmm. thing? And Chris dropped my name. So Paul like emailed me, and then he called me and was like, hey, are you willing to to film Tempest yeah, Freerunning? Like, Team this. Tempest come and just you know film and, and hang out in Blacksburg, Virginia at Tech. And I was like, dude. Totally. I mean, I, <laughs> let me think about that. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I definitely didn't charge enough money because I was just stoked on the idea. It was my first like professional, like, oh man, I made it. Like parkour guys are going to pay me to do this stuff now. Like it's Team Tempest. Like they're a huge name, but it was awesome. It was a great experience, but that was kind of my first step where I was like, you know what? Maybe I could just, maybe I could just do this. Like maybe it could be my job. 
So I was just going to interrupt you and say, that sounds like the first, <laughs> exactly what you just said. That sounds like the first. So, all right. So what year was that? That was like 2012. Okay. I think, so that's like 2012. So, but what I wanted, the point I wanted to make was that's six years before the year that you're a free man or, you know, so five, a good solid five years yeah. from what was probably in hindsight, you can, you didn't see it at the time, but in hindsight, you can see that's probably the first glimpse of where you had an idea. So the, the point I just wanted to pull out here, like before I let you go again, yeah. is, is that's a five year journey from mm-hmm. the first time that you actually got paid, like really got paid to do something professional to when you realize that you're, right, I'm, you know, last day at work kind of thing. All right. So Virginia Tech got paid, should have charged more. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a mistake everyone makes early on in their career when they're creatives and trying to make it, you know, you're like, oh, should I charge like a couple hundred bucks? Like that seems like too much. Like what if they say no? (laughs) And like, you know, looking back, obviously I have a lot more experience dealing with clients and, you know, budgets and things like Mm -hmm. that. I I wish I had charged more, but I don't regret the decision. Um, It was a good experience for me and it was really fun just to go down there and hang out with those guys. And I was a kid, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing back then. So I have a lot more experience now and I could have commanded a higher rate, but you know, so anyway, so yeah, so five years ago, that was kind of the first journey you end. Like up until that point between then and and now, I was just sort of building my portfolio, accepting jobs and really traveling and just getting my name out there. And unfortunately, there's, I wish I could give somebody like, here's what you have to do. Like, here's a list of things you should mm-hmm. do to transition from your day job or what, like coaching or whatever to being a photographer or professional like creative media person. Well, if I can wedge a question in. So you just said, and I hear people say this a lot. I'm not being, not being negative. People say often I was working on my portfolio, but there's two ways to do that. I, that I can think of off the top of my head. One way is like literally, all right, I want to get into art school and to submit my portfolio, I need like a bullet list. And they actually tell you like, or somebody will say to get in art school, you have to do X, Y, and Z. So right. when you say you're creating a portfolio, I'm going to guess that what you were really doing was you weren't looking at the long game. You were just looking at things that drew your attention and mm-hmm. then working on those. So you were, I was about to say in effect, because literally you are, but you are in effect accidentally creating a portfolio by simply doing the work. And, yeah. and I mean, simply just like with no drama, with no, like, not that it's easy, but what did you do? Oh, I went and I took this photo. What'd you do? I went and I shot this video and then I spent six hours editing. Like you, you mm-hmm. simply started at the thing that you knew you could do today and weren't really focused on the long term. I just wanted to like point it out because that, I think that's a key part of the story is that it's a long journey. Yeah. Everybody's story would be, it's a long journey made up of these tiny little steps. Right. So I interrupted you again. Keep going. No, no, it's, <laughs> I think that's, that is a really fair point to make. I think it, and it wasn't like my goal is, well, I mean, it was in the back of my head where I was like, you know, eventually I would like to be working fully for myself, mm-hmm. being a freelance photographer, a videographer, you know, doing my own thing. But it wasn't like a, I have a three-year plan or a five-year plan or whatever. It was mm-hmm. just like, I'm going to go out and shoot stuff that I really like doing because mm-hmm. I want to, because I, because I need to almost, you know, where I'm like, I need this, yeah. I have this feeling that I need to create and shoot parkour athletes and, and capture this moment. And I had to, you know, satiate that urge to do that. And even if I wasn't getting paid to do it, I'd still do it. Mm-hmm. You know, even if I wasn't working for myself now, I'd still be moonlighting and going to events over the weekend and taking time off from my job to go fly to Vancouver to shoot NAPC or to work with strike movement or, you know, whatever. Those are all things that I just, I love doing them. And that I think is the one piece of advice I would give someone is just shoot what you really like doing. Don't shoot stuff that you think people will like or stuff that you think will be popular or whatever, because you're going to end up being known as the guy that shoots the stuff that you don't really like. And um, there's a photographer that I worked with 
when I was in New York that, that's still there. He's a great photographer. Um, this guy named Ben Frank, who shot some parkour athletes. He's the guy that does the the flower. I don't know if you've seen those, the photos of the, the athletes like moving with flower oh, yes. in the dark. Yeah, F-L-O-U-R, right? Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I said flower. I thought of the plant. Yeah, like I'm the like, big oh, yeah, white, <laughs> white yes. mists of flower. Um, so that's Ben. Ben is an incredible photographer. But when I was asking him when I was first making this jump, I just asked him, you know, what do you, like, what did you do to get to where you are? And he said, you know, just, I just shot stuff that I really liked. And also he's super persistent. He got a New York Times because he just emailed the guy and mailed him stuff mm-hmm. and called him and just was that persistent guy that just wouldn't let go. And it worked out for him. But he also just told me I wasn't going to compromise. Like, I'm not going to shoot stuff. I will shoot stuff that, that I need to shoot to get paid to, to make my rents or to pay for my lunch or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to put that on my website. Yeah. On the website, it's going to be just the stuff that I really love doing that I want to get paid to do. Because you want to be known as the guy that does the part, like the crazy, yeah, the high contrast, love, right? parkour, ethereal portraits. Like that's the thing he wants to do. And someone wants to pay him for that. Like that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been doing with my brand is just shooting stuff that I really like. And I do other things. I shoot food. I shoot product photography. I do some e-commerce stuff, all sorts of different things. Like you do odd jobs here and there. And that helps me pay for the lifestyle that I lead. But what I want to be doing is shooting NAPC, shooting, right. you know, promos for Grubhub, shooting stuff for like I want to be doing that stuff more of the time. So I would say, you know, don't shy away from doing that work, but the energy and time and love and passion should go into stuff that you really care about. I always find when I'm doing interviews, I have like 15 things I want to talk about. So the next thing that I'm just going to veer towards mm-hmm. is this idea that I have that I don't really have a name for. I'm going to call it the the editorial aspect of the creative part. So in your case, we're talking about photography and videography. And in my case, we would be talking about audio. I don't actually cut the audio, but I'm responsible for like what we do. And I find it's really difficult Mm -hmm. to edit. And one part of it is, oh yeah, make sure, for example, that you're not figuratively or literally in the artwork. But the other part of it is when you cut something off, you're saying something as much by what you leave out as you are, and right? So with photography, it's literally like, you know, is the tree branch in or do I use the tree as the frame or all these little things? So how much do you, like, I get lost in the editorial part of this. So how much do you get lost, if at all? Please tell me you get lost because basically it's not weird. But do you yeah. get lost in that process and how do you deal with that? Like, how do you know, okay, this is good enough and I should release it. I would assume video is a much deeper hole than an individual photograph. But like, how do you how do you decide when it's edited enough? How do you edit? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think with photos, the the big part of the process that takes a long time for me is looking at which photos make the cut and which don't. I shoot sometimes for a couple of hours of shooting. I'll take upwards of five hundred photos, mm-hmm. and I have to parse through that and and choose maybe twenty Ouch. or maybe five. Sometimes you know, there are times where I'm shooting a very long shoot and I have a bunch of different takes and there's like models faces and things are in focus or out of focus. And I have to look at every single detail Mm -hmm. and figure out like, which is the best version of the same photo. And it could be the same exact pose, the same exact everything else, but one slight difference, Mm. like somebody walking in the backgrounds or a seagull in the background or, you know, their eyes slightly glazed over or something, you know? So what do you do when you have, not sorry, just derailing you. What do you do when you have 10 photos that, like maybe from 10 feet away, I'll look identical and you like, okay, these six are bad. You wind up with three candidates and none of them are perfect. Like, how do you pick which, or do you get on yeah. Photoshop? Like, well, we'll put these eyes in the, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've actually, that's, it's funny you say that. Cause I've actually done that. I shot a thing with, uh, with Mike in New York for strike and 
He has this habit. He's not going to love that I put this in here, but it's funny. <laughs> and I don't think he'll do, actually care. Do. For a while, when he was doing flips, he would stick his tongue out. So <laughs> I got this really great photo of him doing a flash kick, but his tongue is just sticking out. And it's you can see it because right. it's like against the sky. So you can see his tongue, like that little round right, right. tongue <laughs> against the sky. <laughs> and so I went through all these photos and I was like, there's got to be a better one in here. There has to be one where he doesn't have his tongue out. And I, I got a few and his body shape wasn't quite right. And like wasn't quite in focus or i didn't get the right frame in motion and there was one that was perfect except for his tongue was out so mm-hmm. i had to go through and i was like you know what i'm i, I can do this like i'm a photoshop <laughs> wizard i can do what i so i went in and took a part of his like a lower part of his face from another shot and just grafted it onto the <laughs> other photo <laughs> and you can do that i mean it's i you think totally make magic yeah i mean there's there's this whole culture around editing and I think it comes from an editorial perspective where like New York Times or Nat Geo, there's been some controversy over people editing images. And sometimes it's it's founded where it's you added an extra rocket trail to make it seem yeah, like there like were more rockets. Really cheating, right? That's really bad. But sometimes it's like, oh, well, there was a distracting element of this like tin can or something right. in an image and they got rid of it. It's like, oh my God, you altered the image. It's, right, it's dishonest. Like that's not, you, you know. pointed the camera. You chose what was in the frame, what was out of the frame. You chose whether to take that, that moment or that moment. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's even more serious than I think Photoshopping the blems off of the model. Now, yeah. if you use the retouched photo to convince people that their life should look like the retouched photo, well, okay, yeah. now you're being dishonest. But if you're talking about what makes a picture perfect, it might be that there is not that wart on, oh, if that only had been facing the other way, we'll just take the wart off. Like, yeah. I, I really think that it's not that big a deal when you edit, when you're editing from the right I was going to say point of view, but that's the wrong metaphor. When you're editing from the right mindset or the right place of intention, yeah, I think if you're changing the quality of the narrative, if that's part of the story of like the editing portion is part of the story, then then it becomes dishonest mm-hmm. and you shouldn't do that. But if it's distracting from the idea or the the point of your your media, then I think it's okay. Mm-hmm. And that's I mean that's part of the struggle for me as well is like how much do I edit? And generally with a photo, what I like to do is it's really about the athlete, but sometimes I'll shoot portraits where it's more about how the athlete interacts with the space. And so the architecture, the walls, the rails are just as important as the athlete. So in those cases, you have to be especially careful and it takes a little bit more time and a careful eye of like how to balance the distracting elements of the background, you know, people walking around mm. or the buildings that are in the far background or the roads or the streets. And like, so how do you cloud, make that? Right. Like there's too many clouds in the sky at the moment. Yeah. yeah. How do you make the bars and Tompkins really punch out? How do you make the, yeah. So <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. So these, these things are, you know, they all go into my editing process for mm-hmm. sure. But I mean, it takes me a long time and really the, the hardest part for me is just choosing of all these photos, like I like them all for different reasons, and some of these are good, and some of these are bad, and some of them are clearly bad. Like I, I take so many bad photos. I was going to say you believe. probably delete the clearly bad oh, ones, yeah. right? For sure, those ones, the the ones where I just completely missed the shot. <laughs> Why or did I know. take a shot, right? And yeah, that's also a good thing I think for people to hear is like I'm definitely not perfect. You know, it's all a process. I'm I'm learning how to do this, and I still take really bad photos all the time. Like every time I shoot, there's some bad photos in there. So <laughs> if you're looking at your camera at the back, like at the end of a shoot, and you're like, man, I took this terrible photo. Like don't you know? It, it happens. It happens <laughs> to the best of us. Take I'm sure. five thousand more. Yeah. You know, Trey Ratcliffe is out here with terrible photos as well. You know, the professionals at the top top level still take bad photos every once in a while. But you want to nail the, I mean, you want to have a better proportion of the good ones versus the bad ones. But mm. going through calling out the the bad clips is is the hardest part for me. I mean, when I'm making videos too, it's, I have to go through, I'm going through every single thing I shot 
in a year or in six months or however long or in the portion of a shoot like three right. months and i'm choosing like this sometimes it's easy sometimes it's like yeah the athlete didn't make the jump they bounced back on this so that's that's clearly a cut but maybe they bailed in the funny way and you want to use that for something right. else like then that's, that's gag like, real right how do you how do you categorize that and how do you put that in a separate folder and you know it's yeah so i mean editing is is not easy right. i don't think and i definitely get stuck i get stuck in ruts sometimes and what I will usually do when I'm looking at a photo, if I'm really getting into the minutia where I'm doing like skin retouching and toning and I'm doing like eye adjustments and hair adjustments and I'm removing elements in the backgrounds and I'm like changing the backgrounds and I'm doing like removing wrinkles from clothing. When I'm doing all those things, you get lost in the tiny little details right. and you lose the big picture. So one of the best things that I've learned to do is just make your adjustments, finish your, your train of thought, like your train of creative process mm -hmm. and then walk away for a while. Mm -hmm. Walk away, zoom out, like close your eyes or go, you know, right. watch a, listen to a podcast, for example, or, you know, <laughs> oh, nicely played. Watch, a, <laughs> watch an episode of Netflix or something, you know, take it, take a break and don't think about it and then come back and see if it still makes sense. Because sometimes when you're in it, you're like, oh, this is going to be great. Like, oh, I'm adding a bunch of like brightness and sparkle to their eyes. And you look back and then when you come back after five minutes, it looks like an alien. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it doesn't fit. That was I'm clearly not go, not the day they took that photo, right? Yeah. I mean, it happens. So I think having that, just having that balance of being able to walk away. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true. I think with writing emails or pretty much anything in, in my life, at least where when I get too deep in the details, I just, I lose the big picture. So for me, I have to take a step back and literally like not look at it. How much of that process is what i want to know is is it useful to bring other people in and that that opens the question of like other people who are also artists in the same medium or random other people who are going to be consumers of the medium but how much of that process gets better or worse if you bring in someone else so like if if you can imagine you know one has whether it's me with audio or you whatever one has mm -hmm. a project and one like oh here's the pieces that i captured here i gotta start from here and i have a vision and I get like two thirds of the way through and I'm like, all right, now the rest is going to be this slog fest while I work on wrinkles and, you know, little minutia. Do you show that like rough cut? I mean, maybe it's a photo, maybe it's a video, maybe it's an audio. Do you show the rough cut to anyone else or do you trust yourself and say, nope, it's, it's me all the way from beginning to end. And then I'm just going to be judged based on the end. And you're sort of packing the process in like the finished thing is the sum of the raw material, the process, and there's no, I don't want anybody else in the soup. And I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> I think it depends. Oh, um, gonna say <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's, it's tricky. There's not a, it's not a yes or no answer. Right. Cause it depends on the situation and what the project's for. Mm -hmm. So I know there are photographers out there that get into hot water because they share their like raw images mm -hmm. with a client. And if you are, I think I don't want to make this statement, but I was going to say if you're a good photographer, you shoot to edit, but that's not necessarily true because I know plenty of good photographers out there that don't really shoot to edit because their workflows don't allow it. So like people that shoot like bands. Mm -hmm. So this, this woman, Stephanie Cabral that I met, she shoots like for Revolver magazine and has done stuff on like Ozzy Osbourne, like some of the, the big, the big, big bands. Mm -hmm. And she just shoots to have stuff in camera. Oh, right. So I got to shoot it tonight and I got to deliver yeah. it tomorrow morning. And, then and it's like, it. I have another shoot tomorrow. I'm flying to LA tomorrow. Right. Like she needs to get that stuff out because it needs to go out. But I think for my style of photography, I shoot to edit. So, and, and like weddings too, I think people that have that highly polished, like it's not gritty. It's not meant to be raw. It's meant to be like curated. Polished, in a lot of ways. curated memory. They shoot to edit. And so 
the raw image is not really an indication of what the finished image could look like. Mm -hmm. And it's not really fair to judge the quality of the image. And people do tear sheets sometimes where they mm -hmm. have just like little tiny thumbnails, everything, and the bride and groom can pick. Yeah. Oh, you missed Aunt Sally. Whoop. You know, or like, or you got to yeah, get that person out. Right. But they're not looking at the photos at that point. But yeah. They're generally, generally the process I wouldn't, I wouldn't really share with people okay. unless someone's curious about how I, how I got to the image, but I lead with the finished product mm -hmm. and say, here's what it looks like. Here's how I got there. Right. Because that's important because people people just lose the context of, like, it, it is a process. They mm -hmm. think, like, you shoot an image. Because people are used to cameras now with, with their phones where mm -hmm. they just take a picture and they post on Instagram. And that's fine. Like, cameras are pretty good these days. But for people that are deep into doing, you know, e-commerce where they have to worry about are labels clear and sharp mm -hmm. and do they pop from the backgrounds? Are people's eyes in focus? Like, I worry about those things. And... If you see an image that's not that looks a little flat and doesn't look like super nice, people are going to judge you based on it. So I don't think that's necessarily the best way to go about it. One, I'm shooting with athletes. I will share images with them because I think it's important for them to be in love with the images too. Like I want them to be happy with how their body shape looks and how the product is coming out, and like how it looks on their body. Mm -hmm. That's super important to me as well. So like that is a part yeah, where but those I'm, consumers are probably a little more used to like this is an intermediate step. Like they're probably more used to seeing that yeah. like rough shot earlier on. Like, okay, I get it because I've seen shots like that before and I know what the end result's going to be. So they're, they're kind of a special case there. Yeah. So like the guys I shoot with a lot, like, you know, Nikki and, and Shaw and, and Mike and Jesse, they all know what it's like to shoot with photographers and, and do stuff for like editorial for, or for advertorial stuff too. So they know that when I'm shooting, I'm just showing them the rough cut and they know that the finished product will look more polished. There's going to be an extra elements of, of sharpness and clarity and, you know, whatever it is on top of that, that's going to make it look better. The only exception I would make is if I'm working on a project, like a passion, fun project, like I shot a video with the, this athlete, Jake, and I gave him the rough cut because I wanted to make sure he was happy with the song and the way I was cutting it because mm -hmm. he chose the song, but he was on the fence about it. So he was like, I like the song, but I'm not sure if it's going to fit with my movements. So I said, you know what, I'll, I'll send you a, a version, an early version of the preliminary cut. And if you have feedback on that and you don't like it, then we can go back to the drawing board. Right. So that happens sometimes too. But so again, it's, it's kind of a, it depends on your discretion, the level of the project, like professional projects. I don't know if I would ever really share the process yeah, just because people just don't have imagination. You know, they see it and they're <laughs> like, this looks terrible. Like, why would you send this to me? Like, I worked with a brand once and I shot, a food like an overhead food video for them and i sent them an unedited version that was like not color graded so it was really flat and they're like why does it look so bad like why does the color look so bad and i told them beforehand like it's not going to be color graded yeah. and i talked to another staff member who'd worked with them like another freelance photographer and she said don't do that like, <laughs> make sure you only send them the finish because they don't know they yeah. just think you're bad at your job basically <laughs> and that sucks like that's really terrible but it's a part of the process it's it's kind of a blind process you know people just don't yeah. don't know the work that goes into it they think that it just comes out of the camera and it's like a quick process where you just drop it into premiere or final cut or you know what or avid or whatever you're using and it's that's good 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 to go right you know steve we've talked about the process of creating and we've talked a little bit about editing but now i'm wondering do you think about the photography, the visual, the video part of it when you're moving. So are those two different people? Is there the Steve, the mover who goes out? Or do you find that mid-movement, even though you're not being photographed, you're thinking, how would this frame up? Or this is a nice day to be shooting this? Or, or do those two manage to stay separate? Or if they're entangled, what pieces call to you? Well, I think I'm always thinking about composition and especially quality of light when I'm outside, when I'm looking at things, I was mentioning to you earlier that 
when I'm looking at photos on the wall or advertisements, I'm, I'm thinking about like, how do they get this shot? And when it comes to my movement, I, I, first of all, I hate, I, I hate <laughs> being photographed. I hate being filmed. I'm getting better at it because I'm filming myself, but I think that's a, a pretty common narrative with people that are behind the camera mm-hmm. for a lot of the time. They don't like being in front of it. It's given me a lot of insight on what clients think is cool and what looks good. And I think it changes what I view as like a high priority movement. I don't know. I think it's it's given me a lot of insight in analyzing how people move and looking specifically at like hip hinge and knee bends and ankle flexion. And those are all things that really affect the way a shape in the body can look and can make or break a photo. So I think a lot about that when I photograph someone like Max and I see his his knee drive when he's striding. I'm just paying attention to that because it not only looks cool, but it also is it's like, oh, that's how he approaches this movement. That's how he generates more power, even though he's, you know, shorter than Brian Prince mm-hmm. and can stride just as far. But I never really thought about that. I think it's a really interesting question. And I'm, I'm sure it leaches into my movement practice in ways I'm not even aware of. Because I'm sure I'm just thinking about like that looks weird. Do you ever have ideas where in the process of moving or even in a particular space or even in front of a particular backdrop, like a skyline or something, do you ever have moments where you realize you want to swap yourself out for a better athlete so you can grab the camera and capture? Like, so does moving give oh, yeah. you ideas? for? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I'm looking at something and I'm saying like, that's a really cool backdrop. Like, oh, it'd be really cool to do this type of movement on this thing because it'd be a really cool photo. And the limitations with my own physical practice, like I I can't be the guy. Right. And I think it's also not necessarily a trust thing, but I'm just, I'm not sure if the people that I train with would be able to capture the photo the way that I'd want it. Mm. So I have to convince someone to do, oh, can you do a layout onto this concrete slab 13 feet up in the <laughs> air go bad right which tends to be a no for most people but <laughs> call me next time i'll say no yeah you know every once in a while i'll get somebody's like yeah i can do that it's funny i was talking about ben earlier and ben was telling me how when eric mukamechin came to new york he was asking him to do some wacky stuff like they were on the brooklyn bridge and eric did like a webster pre onto one of the beams above moving traffic oh. <laughs> <laughs> And I think the story goes, uh, uh, Ben, if he's listening to this, which I hope I hope he is, that'd be great. I think Ben, the story goes that he didn't even ask him to do it. Eric just did it. I think Ben wanted him to, to do a backflip on the beam. And Eric did a Webster just to get down onto it. He's a madman. <laughs> but he's one of those guys that I would be able to say, hey, can you do this? And he'd go, yeah. Sure. Yes, I can do that. <laughs> I don't know if that's what he sounds like, but uh, I imagine. It fit. It fit at the moment. But yeah, I mean, for sure, my own movements definitely limits. Does that, does that get in your way? Like, I can honestly say, I don't think I can ever imagine ever having done anything where I thought, oh, I want a camera so I can put someone in my place to do this thing that I'm imagining. That has never happened to me. I, I might think, oh, I wish I could do this challenge, but I'm actually mm. never thinking, I wish I could capture the visual part of this, which is really interesting because I, I hope it is not a new thing that's going to be stuck in my head. But I, I'm wondering if you were previously aware that you were doing that and if you're, I'm wondering how common that is. Like, are all photographers doing that? Is it only the photographers doing that? Or is that maybe a sign of like, if you were doing that before you picked up the camera, maybe that's what led to the photography, videography bug. Now I'm just fishing to see how unique that perspective is and if you perceive that to be unique. Yeah, I think by and large, what you're saying is pretty true for me as well. I do consider myself to be an athlete and I love parkour, but I'm not nearly as high level as some of the guys that I work with. 
but a lot of what I do when I work with them is I'm bouncing ideas off of them. Mm -hmm. And because I have the background in parkour, I know kind of what should be possible. And when I'm working with somebody who I'm comfortable with and training with on a regular basis, I kind of know where the limits are. Mm. And I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll suggest something stupid. That's <laughs> it's just that's checking. Like, are yeah. they paying attention? <laughs> it's like, Oh, good joke, Steve. Like that's funny. Um, but uh, usually when I'm at a shoot and I'm trying to convince someone to do something that I think is in their level, it's, it's like, Oh, well, I could do this and they're like, Oh, well, what about this? Like, well, I think it would look better if you did it this way mm. because for the photo, your hips are going to be this way and your face is going to be towards the camera or the light is coming this way. So mm. I want you to face this direction. So that's kind of where it comes in for me at least. But generally, yeah, I'm not really sure if anything that I've done is really photo worthy most of the time. Mm. And I think that kind of loops back into one of the reasons why I delved deeper into parkour photography in the first place is because I wanted to find a way to contribute to the community and feel like I was a part of this larger group without being a high-level athlete. And I think it's hard for mm. people that aren't like Kai Willis, for example. You know, he can go to any events anywhere in the world, and I think people would, one, recognize him, and two, find a place for him. You right. would be volunteering to help, or he could just go train or do whatever. If you're not at a level where you're an elite athlete that has a massive following on Instagram or, you know, has done videos with X brands or whatever, or teaches with whatever movement collective, it can be hard to find a place for yourself in these big events. I don't think there, it was always the case. Early on during parkour, I think the community was so small that if you did parkour and you knew about it and you knew this other person, chances are you guys were going to be friends. Right. Just because it's like, oh, you know about this weird, obscure internet thing? Like, yeah. you know about David Bell? Right. Like, oh, man, we should talk. We should be friends. Like, let's train together. But now parkour is so big that, you know, there's kids that don't even know who David Bell is. Right. And or different funny. generations. Yeah. It, it, like, I really, sorry, don't want to train with you. Like, it doesn't work. We have different attack plans to how we look at things or yeah. challenges. And, I mean, I love parkour and I love photographing it because i think it's really interesting and that's first and foremost the reason why i did it but also i think you know secondarily it's it's my way of getting access and you know being part of this inner sanctum without mm. without being the guy that kong gainered you know <laughs> right <laughs> who did the thing right who kong gainered manpower right. or you know <laughs> yes or being verky or or being kaylin chan who have can, you ever looked at have you ever stood and looked at manpower i've never been there actually Ooh. it's spooky it's I'm really guessing. impressive in pictures and videos it's way more impressive in person <laughs> i haven't stood on it i've stood under it yeah um anyway i'm wondering if you want to talk about everybody who takes pictures and videos and shares them if you delete them i'm not talking about that but if you share them you're contributing to the the giant overall thing which is parkour so parkour is not just what we do it's mm -hmm. also the videos that we take of it and the the things we write about it and i'm wondering it seems to me i'm wondering what your opinion on this is that there is a decrease in the number of i'm gonna call them artifacts pictures videos all kinds mm -hmm. of things that we're all creating that are a more i want to say considered things i don't mean that people are producing junk but what i mean is the pieces that are produced now tend to be, I hate to just say shorter, but they're different. And mm -hmm. people seem to be doing less. I've spent the last six months shooting little clips and I'm going to put it all together and then I'm going to produce this thing. It's only five minutes long, but then it's going to be the center of a nucleus of discussion and my friends are going to mm -hmm. talk about it. And okay, only 80 people saw it on the whole planet. Yeah. But that, whatever we call that, we need a noun for that. Whatever that is, we don't seem to be doing that. Maybe we're still doing it and I don't see it, but we don't seem to be doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know, I don't want to just say, oh, that's because how social media works, but people are producing the content that the other people want to consume. And somehow we seem to have lost the, maybe I should say artiste with an E on the end. Like we've lost the person. Mm. I feel we've lost the person who would produce the, the year in review. I mean, we still do some year in review videos, but like the year in review videos or the whole, not necessarily a montage, but like, here's my last year of training. So I'm just wondering if your if your thoughts are like do, do you agree did we do we seem to have lost that and if we have lost it is that a bad thing and if it is a bad thing what might we do to try and regain it yeah so I sorry that's a lot right? no it's it's okay <laughs> I do think that we are seeing a less of those types of videos and I struggle with this question because it might be a generational thing I might be one of the I'm going to be 30 this year so <laughs> like, I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> you know I've been doing parkour for for 11 years now so that's way I, longer than me I, i'm, I'm you know, only in seven we're the the old guard of parkour practitioners who remember the old videos who remember mm-hmm. like chris ilabaca dropping yeah. videos way what, back what in we the should day. call the overnight download people if you know what yeah. we mean by the overnight download kind of parkour universe yeah back when like google video was still around and we were looking for videos on that, like that <laughs> that's what i remember like Man. i remember seeing russian climbers like back when it was under 10 different names mm. and but there were like maybe 100 videos with tagged parkour in the entire internet right and i i wonder if maybe it's, that's my perspective i just don't see enough of these videos but i don't think it's controversial to say that there's far more parkour videos now that come out pretty much every day mm. than there were coming out in years when i first started so you know at, at best these videos still come out, but they're lost in the signal. You know, they're lost in the sauce and I just don't see them. And I'll be the first to admit that I don't really watch parkour videos as often as I used to. Um, just cause I, it's just overload. I can't really focus on following people and watching. Like, I, I'd be sitting all day basically if I wanted right. to watch parkour videos. Whereas back in the day it would be like one good video would come out a week or maybe a month and I would watch that and we'd all talk about it and it'd be great. Right. But speaking from personal experience, I think there, there used to be, kind of a culture around talking about videos. Like they gave you this kind of feeling of nostalgia or feeling of like community. And for me, when I watch like the old Ampersound videos or um, the old Antoine Dutille videos, it, make, it makes me feel like that's what parkour is. Like when I watch those videos, it's not like crazy movement. It's maybe Phil doing a real pre in his socks. It's Danny doing a Webster to his butt in Cambridge on the roof like jumping into like him swinging on a rope mm-hmm. or jumping into a, a lawn chair and breaking it. Like that's to me, that's like what parkour was when I first started. And it still is very much like that for me, but I just don't see those videos anymore. And maybe again, maybe I'm missing them, but I think that by and large, two things have happened. One, we're having, we have this huge influx of content coming out every day and we're, we're trying to focus more on at least the, the major outlets like store and storm are trying to focus on reaching people that don't do parkour so what's happened with that is they're they're focusing more on impressive large movements or they're doing vlog type content that comes out every day. So the nature of those two things mean that the lifestyle kind of fun, goofy, like this is what parkour is, gets kind of lost in that. And it gets deprioritized because the average person that doesn't know what parkour is, doesn't want to see like going to the store yeah, Daniel and, swing on the ropes and making funny see. inside jokes yeah. or Max Runham having his arm popped up by Tim Sheaf. <laughs> Take my strong arm. Like no one, people that don't do parkour, they might laugh, but they don't, they don't get it. You know, it's not like they don't resonate with that culture. Mm-hmm. They want to see like Kalen Chan doing the corkscrew Kong gainer full. Mm-hmm. Like that is cool for them. They want to see like Pasha's weird, like the Webster thing where his head is like two inches away from the pool edge. 
and right. he falls in the pool. Like that's cool. And I agree, that's awesome. Like that stuff is super cool. I get stoked on that too. But what I don't want to see is like I what's happening, what I feel is happening is I don't want that to be at the expense of the other thing. Right. Because I think they both have value. And the third thing is like the vlog type content. Instagram, I think, has created a culture where people are just used to seeing more content on a regular basis. Whereas we used to wait. I mean, the, over <laughs> the overnight download, download. <laughs> overnight download culture is is used to having one good video come out a month. Like I remember when Tag had had his monthly compilations, and that was a huge deal for me. Like I waited and waited and waited and refreshed the page, and I was like, I can't wait for him <laughs> right. to to upload this video. Like when is it coming? Like I can't wait for for Furiari to come out. And it was a whole thing, and like we just spent the entire month. I was like, oh man, like that was a cool thing he did. That Dino was so sick. Like all the the cat leap arm jump he did combination. Like that spot's so cool. I've never seen that before. And now I feel like people just don't. There's not that dialogue, that conversation, that cultural conversation around videos as much as there used See, to be. That that I think is what. And I mean, I kind of like let us here, but I think that dialogue like you and i had talked before about this that dialogue is the thing that i feel that i'm missing now the whole overnight download parkour video thing is before i started parkour so i've totally done the overnight download thing i, I did that <laughs> but not for parkour for different things right, right for different things yeah. so I, I totally get that but i also missed that dialogue aspect of it because i wasn't in parkour mm-hmm. when that was happening so i'm wondering if the missing dialogue or that having gone away if that might be a big piece so there's like factions in the parkour universe now where some people say that there's a piece of the culture that's missing or there's like this ineffable thing that they can't quite put their finger on that's like well this isn't right like they'll say i don't like competition but then when you ask them what exactly is wrong with it i mean they have an idea but i'm wondering if it's that dialogue so what we're all sensing is not that there's anything wrong with what's being done today it's not that the 30 gram instagram video is satan incarnate that's not the problem the problem is this dialogue piece that we hadn't all paid attention to and i wasn't even there but like we hadn't paid attention to that so my question is well that's actually cool because if that's what's missing we just need to regain that it's not like we have to reinvent the internet or take down social media it's just whoops we've stopped exchanging that dialogue and then the next question of course is like okay how do we i don't have an answer to this but like how do we go back to doing that because i think the answer comes down to you have to figure out how to enable someone or a small group of someone's to spend that much time on the thing Mm -hmm. and that kind of works today but then when they produce the artifact we have to figure out how to make sure that we all continue to engage with that artifact for the next two days, three days a week and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it's that dialogue that really is the piece that's lost. It's not that those videos really were that awesome. They're, they're just individual jumping off points for the dialogue and discussion and for the community to all ref refer to. I could be wrong. But. Yeah. I, I think it would be interesting to ask someone like Max Henry, like, why do you like Cambridge joy? that video that came out with Danny doing the triple Kong in Cambridge. Like why, why is that video so awesome? And I don't think it's because Danny did the triple Kong in it. Mm. I think it's because it's like, Oh, when I watch it, it just makes me, it just makes me feel happy. Like it makes me feel like this is the heart of parkour. But when you say, what did you like about Nate Weston's homecoming? Maybe it was the, like the side flip rail pre that he did off of the rail. Like, I don't know if it's the feeling and maybe it's an unfair comparison to make because they're very different videos. Like the one is a compilation video of just a training day and another one is a polished piece, which is it's a beautiful piece, by the way, if you haven't seen it. It's amazingly well-produced, very high-level movements, but that's the type of content that comes out that is popular, that's you know popping with our community that gets shared. 
but I don't see a lot of the videos like Cambridge Joy. I don't think there's a space for that mm-hmm. so much anymore. And I think people do make them still, but they just get drowned out and don't get the features that personally I think that they they should get because I think it is an important piece of parkour culture that like maybe the the, uh, the new generation of practitioners is not getting. I've had a few guests where we've talked about there's different names for it radical inclusivity, you know, leveling the playing field, in, empowering everybody to be able to practice, creating safe spaces. There's this whole giant topic of discussion about how parkour, because it is for everyone, how it's important that we make sure that it is accessible to everyone. And and I'm just like, I'm thinking about that. And now I'm thinking about our discussion about, let's call it the overnight download culture that we've seen to be losing, which has taken away a certain kind of dialogue. And I'm wondering, is the difference that Without that dialogue, I'm just going to talk about me like as a new person, I'm not able to really understand the the culture of effort or like some people like to say the suck. Like I don't understand why I would want to go through the effort to pick up this thing that everybody seems so passionate about if I haven't had the chance to have that dialogue with that community. So, you know, in the, I downloaded overnight and then I understand this video, it like validates all that hard work I put in last weekend. And then it becomes this virtuous cycle of I'm willing to train hard and I'm willing to work through difficulty and I'm learning, I'm willing to embrace the suck. So I'm, I'm building the culture of effort. And I'm just wondering, is that perhaps a big piece of what I hate to say it kids these days are missing. So they're starting in parkour gyms and there's a certain type of student that does well there, but they also don't do well when they hit certain types of challenges. And maybe all that's missing is not, it's nothing wrong with the people. There's nothing wrong with the program. What's missing is that they don't understand why that challenge. And, and I'm just thinking out loud, but mm-hmm. that's, I'm just it struck me as an interesting connection between the dialogue that we're missing and the change in the culture of the newest people who are starting. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah, just chuckling because like what that I normally I say, I try to serve things that you can spike. Well, good luck with that one, Steve. <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's good. It's, it brings all the elements that we were talking about together. Um, <laughs> so in a finger painting sort of fashion where you just smear the colors together. So what I would say to that is there is, there has been a sort of counterculture to the, the high, like hyper polished runs and mm-hmm. only movements that you find perfect mm-hmm. with the rise of the dailies like Jamie Davidson when he started that, mm-hmm. like the 365 challenge or even just a month-long challenge where it was just his movements. Mm-hmm. I think originally the idea behind it was good because it just shows a day in the life of a Triss or it shows like not even not the banger challenges, not the crazy challenges that you put in a compilation video or submit to whatever casting agency right. to show that you can do these crazy things. It just shows thing. like today I worked on rail flow. Today I did one side flip. Today I did handstand. Today I did conditioning and i think that stuff's super cool to your point though i i think that what's happened is people got used to the idea of seeing parkour content every day and what i see from some of my peers and some of my friends that are high level athletes is they'll have one good training session and they'll film 10 different challenges that are all crazy and then they'll say well i have content for the next two weeks because Mm. i have one post every five days or like a post every day for five days for two weeks. And I don't know if that's really what, what the idea behind that challenge was. And I think it's kind of distorted the way that people consume parkour content. They're used to seeing more and more content every day. And now they only want to see 
the biggest and baddest and best tricks every yeah, day. It, it doesn't just change the way they consume parkour content. It yeah. may actually change the way they consume parkour. Yeah. Because the parkour is this amorphous thing that I, I can't actually find it. It's right. just, it's the thing that I create through my actions. So changing what I am expecting to see also mm -hmm. changes ex what I am expecting to move, what I am expecting to encounter. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky because I, I started parkour when I was 18. So, I mean, young, but I wasn't a kid. There are right. kids now that start when they're six mm -hmm. or five or four even. And I don't know what that experience is like because when I was a kid, I'm sure I got frustrated. I, I, knew, I mean, I know I got frustrated at school and when I couldn't do something. Yep. As, as a young adult, it's easier to, to quell those emotions and to be a little bit more patient. But what I see by and large in a lot of, especially in gym culture or um, like summer camps or after schools, is there's kind of a, they don't really let kids lean into that frustration. And when I first started parkour, I was, I'm not really technically first generation because I had some instruction from the, the Michigan parkour crew. But um, there was a period of time where I was three months in and I uh, went back to my hometown and no one did parkour back then because it was 2008 and uh, no one even knew what that was. So I tried to make a club in my hometown and there was no one interested. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just training by myself for, for three months in the summer between years in college. So I had a lot of self-directed where I was just watching videos of people doing parkour and being like, well, how do they do this? Like, how do they, how do I dash fall? Like, how do I figure this out? How do I do an underbar? Like, what's the technique? Let me watch a bunch of videos of people just moving and I'll see if I can figure it out. Like, let me see if I can find a rail, first of all, in my hometown that, that even <laughs> right. works for an underbar. Right. <laughs> and I'll then, have that lower rail that's in the way, right? Yeah. And then second of all, can I figure it out based on just seeing somebody else move? Like, no one's going to tell me how to do it. I just have to watch somebody do it. And I failed so many times, but I kind of feel like, and this might be a bit of a hot take, but I kind of feel that that kind of resilience is getting lost because we are instilling in a lot of kids. And I can't speak for some of the gym programs like Origins or Apex, you know, but I can speak from my own like my own experience dealing with some programs and seeing how some school programs and after schools are structured. Is that a lot of them lean towards kind of frustration free experience yeah, inclusivity is when in doubt we're going this way well yeah if a kid can't do a jump then it's like oh it's okay you know it's okay we can work on something else we can do something that you're good at so you can feel successful at the end of the day and there were days when i was training and there are still days now where i'm like man i suck like that mm -hmm. was terrible i needed to do better and instead of being discouraged and being like i'm gonna quit parkour although sometimes i have those days i think i think we all do <laughs> yes um <laughs> usually it's it's like a, i'm going to do better next session i'm going to come back i'm going to hit that first try and mm -hmm. i think that's a really important part of the culture i think that's a really important for me coming into and, and seeing those old videos to bring it back to the the videos of the like cambridge mm -hmm. joy and like ampasounds videos of like london and Luntu, seeing people just kind of goofing off and like seeing a jam setting people working on challenges people failing at challenges like that resonates with me because i I have been in that exact situation a lot of the time when I first started parkour, even now when I'm training, that's a big part of it. You know, you're not going to go out and just film one line mm -hmm. and, you know, warts and all like kind of failing your way through it and be like, that's good enough for Instagram. You know, you want to polish it up. You want to work on something you can't quite do. You want to progress. And what I worry, and I'm not really sure because we're still so new into the idea of gym rats and, I mean, I guess there are people out there that, um, it's like the, the young gremlins in, in Denver and Colorado, like Casey Wilson and some of the kids in THC are, 
absolute monsters now. And they maybe, I don't know if defied the odds is the right way to put it, but they definitely stuck with it. Yeah, and they may they, just be exceptional. They do some really, really challenging stuff and they push themselves in ways I can't even imagine. But for every one Casey Wilson, I don't know if like how many other kids are out there that just kind of got frustrated really early on and stuck with parkour for a little bit, but then eventually gave it up or. Well, maybe the, as long as we're doing hot takes, maybe the question is not, how do we fix parkour? Maybe the question is, why do we presume that parkour is the whole thing that kids need? So maybe in environments where the kids are particularly small, parkour is exceptionally good at solving certain kinds of problems like body image or mm-hmm. eye hand coordination or and and in those in those spaces mm-hmm. radical inclusivity is the perfect thing you want to make it game you want to get all the kids in, like that the way that we've been approaching it is excellent yeah and maybe the solution is not to then figure out how to continue to expand that to bring back in this dialogue that we've kind of that i brought up mm-hmm. but the solution is to say okay that's one piece of that child's development now the next thing is to figure out All right. Now, in addition to that, when you turn like 12 or 11 or maybe 10, if you're exceptional, then Mm -hmm. there's also this other aspect of parkour, which you haven't seen yet on on, online downloading. You Mm -hmm. haven't seen yet this other part of it, this other culture of effort. And maybe people like me just need to, instead of screaming from my front porch, get off my lawn, I might Mm -hmm. need to say like, okay, well, for this context, for PE education, Mm -hmm. this is awesome. And then the next level, you know, or off to the side would be, all right, now there's another part of this, which is challenging yourself. And maybe even there's another part of this, which is competition. And then that would be, so you don't want to bring competition into that first environment. You want to have it be in its own place. So it's just an interesting way, I think, for me to say, all right, well, what is the thing that's not in that PE program? And I think we've talked, we're kind of going around it generally, mm-hmm. but we've talked around that. So it might just be, yes, we've identified it and we don't want to now try and jam it in there. Yeah. It's, and when you were saying that, I was just thinking, I think the reason why a lot of the educators that are in the parkour space, you know, the, the gym owners and the people that run programs want to include everybody is because by and large, myself included, I felt very not included in team sports, like basketball and football and soccer. Like mm-hmm. I, I did baseball and I did hockey when I was a kid and I just didn't really like them that much. And for me, finding parkour was sort of like a catch-all solution for my like my physical activity. Mm-hmm. I saw this thing as it's a sport, it's active, it's full body. I really like it. I'm not being forced into a win-lose situation. I'm not being forced into a team with a bunch of right. teammates that are either better or worse than me. They're going to rip me, me up for, in the hallway for right? being bad. <laughs> and I, I mean, I mean, I'm also allowed to suck at this. Like I can. I can be not good and that's fine. I'm not going to hurt the overall performance of a collective group of people just because I'm training with them. Mm-hmm. Like you can exist in your own little circle when you're training with somebody and work on a challenge that everyone else can do. And that's fine. No one cares about that. Everyone encourages that actually. It's great. So what were you talking about? Sorry. <laughs> no, I think, I think we are in violent agreement. So I think what you're saying reinforces the point that parkour in a PE environment or mm-hmm. like an after school program or those kinds of things it has a specific uh, or it has a particular role that it is exceptionally good at, which is this whole idea of a better form of physical education, mm-hmm. or, or you could say the original form of physical education, wherever you want to come at that. Yeah. Um, but it is particularly good at physical education and, and including children. And now I'm thinking maybe my, it, my train of thought is, oh, yeah, that's perfect. Don't mess with that. Keep doing that. <laughs> and then in addition, because yeah. what you and I are talking about is that culture, that dialogue, that happens outside of that PE. And it's not just 
physical education, but happens yeah. outside of that structured environment. It's not you're not talking about it in its same time as school, but it's not actually in school. So just an interesting topic, radical idea. Team, you can always email me. I'm not unreachable. Just send me an email, team at moversmindset.com and tell me I'm wrong. I would love to know like where I'm off the rails here and we can always talk about that later. What I see a lot in kids and adult classes is that we are kind of creating these athletes that are used to a structured environment. So they're used to a situation where they have a coach or an instructor telling them what challenges to work on, showing them how to navigate. You, oftentimes it's a gym, sometimes it's outside, but it's like, here's how you use this obstacle. Like work on a Kong Pre here, work on a rail balance here, work on rail flow, do an underbar here. Or like they said, a course for the students to go through. And one of the worrying things I see now is that people are having a hard time bridging that gap of going from student to member of community. Mm -hmm. So they'll be at a gym and they take classes and they go every week and maybe that's just their their weekly escape. Maybe that's their soul cycle or maybe that's their going to the gym and running on the treadmill for 2 hours. That's fine. You know, I'm totally okay with that. I think parkour is a great tool for that. It's like kind of like CrossFit, you know, where you go and get a great workout and you have people that you work with and it's fun and sometimes there's games involved, but if we want people to become part of our community, I think there there's a missing element there of showing them how to go to a jam, for example. And so what I've heard from a lot of people that go to parkour classes and don't really come out to outside sessions is they come out and they see a bunch of usually young men, shirtless, <laughs> doing, you know, side flip pre's or big dive kongs, like risky looking movements, and they freeze. They don't know what to do. They they're like, well, this isn't like class. I, I can do a step fault, right? <laughs> um, I'm not surrounded by people that are at the same level or lower or at a similar level to me. I'm surrounded by very high-level athletes, and I'm in an unfamiliar space that's not safe. What do I do? And for me, when I started parkour, that's that's all it was. Mm -hmm. There there was no safe space. Like the to get a gym program or a gymnastics gym to host a parkour class was so rare. I mean, we had a gym that we had an agreement with, sort of, but. We couldn't call it parkour and we couldn't really do parkour movements. So it was kind of like we just did flips. So for us, the norm for me, at least the norm was just, you got to go outside. You're going to train on concrete. And if you smash your shins into a wall, like that happens, like that's part of the experience. That's part mm. of the, the charm of parkour is that <laughs> you're going to have messed up <laughs> forearms and you're going to rip yep. your hands and you're going to yep. knee yourself and you're going to shin yourself. And I don't know if that's part of the narrative anymore. You know, I, I wonder, and again, this is maybe I'm, old and curmudgeon -y and I'm get off my lawn kids. And no, I, you know. I think you're not. I think it's, um, I, I think that isn't a very important part of it. Let that there's a, a culture of effort and it's not just, I'm sweating and doing, you know, working yeah. really hard at pushups to the music in the group. Yeah. It's like, no, there's all, there's a level of, um, might've been Jesse who said the, it takes a special person to be able to set a challenge for themselves that they cannot achieve. And at first I was like, what do you mean? I could just decide. And then I thought about it. I'm like, oh, right. Because if I set a ridiculous challenge, like reverse QM up, you know, Kilimanjaro, I would never actually try it. That's just totally mm -hmm. crazy. But to set a challenge that you have to really work at, because it really would be good if I did it. And I think I can do it. And then I just failed. That's a really well set yeah. challenge. All right. So to circle back, if there is a culture of effort, which you and I feel is disappearing or is the really precious part, however you want to put that, if there is a culture of effort... I don't think you're going to find that culture of effort in an indoor gym environment where there's a class curriculum. Because if you have a leader 
the leader can't really scream at you, do more push-ups. That's not the same culture of effort as the effort mm. where you're faced with an empty space, you know, like a park. And now go make yourself better. That's a different kind of effort. Yeah. I mean, I can only speak from my perspective of working in New York and seeing programs in kind of the tri-state area. I think there are gyms that are better at it. My first impression is that Origins does a good job because they have outdoor jams that they, I mean, I don't think they force anyone to go, but it's strongly encouraged that all their kids attend. And it's part of their culture that sometimes we train outside. And I think that is a step in the right direction of just saying this doesn't just exist in the gym. This is like a type of parkour that exists in the gym, but all parkour is not in the gym. And encouraging kids to go explore and work on challenges and giving them kind of self-directed movements mm -hmm. is the way I think to help bridge that gap a little bit. I'm not so sure. I think maybe that works better in Canada because of the healthcare system <laughs> and the litigation system. I or think lack of litigation system. in the, in the States here, it's hard because parents are, you know, helicopter parents and they're worried about the safety of their kids and, you know, they can sue instructors or gyms or whatever for, yeah. for mispractice or, or whatever. But I think there is a, there's a happy medium somewhere in there and I'm just, I'm not sure what the solution is, but I, I mean, I'm working with the, in the ways that I can, I'm working with them to, to figure out a way to, to get more people involved in the community. Steve, I say all the time to people that I would love to hear any stories that you want to share because when you hear someone tell a story, you learn a lot about them, about both the story they pick and how they tell it. So is there a story that you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, I think I have one. This is a very sad story, actually. And uh, I think it's probably the last time I, I cried, actually. So I think a lot of people on the East Coast will know who uh, Basilio Montilla is. He was a mainstay in the New York parkour community, one of the original practitioners, one of the guys that brought parkour to a lot of people. He coached at Chelsea Pierce. He coached at Brooklyn Brooklyn Beast back when it was Brooklyn Beast and then Brooklyn Zoo when it was uh, reacquired by new owners. So Basilio was, I mean, he was a great guy, very passionate about training, was training all the time. Like one of the most interesting exciting movers out there and he did some some wacky challenges in, in zoo that i've seen i haven't seen anyone do actually since like some of the stuff i've seen him do was was crazy i didn't actually know him that well but when i moved there we had trained together a few times and um there's some some good stories of like there was a bar crawl he would do every year he yeah so he would he was that guy i heard a story from jesse about him uh they did this like hot wing challenge and no one finished except for Jesse. And then it was a night of them like stumbling, like hallucinating from the heat of the wings. And like at some point Jesse threw up and it was like, so he was really good friends with uh, this guy Bryce. And so they were training together all the time. And, you know, they had like the super Saiyan thing and the anime thing and Dragon Ball Z. Um, so Basilio was an aspiring stuntman. And uh, he was working on his portfolio. And I think, I'm not exactly sure what he was doing, but he was on the roof of Brooklyn. It was Brooklyn Zoo at the time. Um, I think he was doing like a, a backfall off of the roof onto a big resi mat. And um, the guy he was shooting with was just doing him like falling in the air. And uh, he, I think he like pushed too far off the edge or he miscalculated the jump and he, uh, he missed the mat and hit his head on the concrete from the roof. And um, I remember when this happened because it really wasn't, it didn't seem like it was that bad. I was training with a few people. There was a community gym happening in uh, Inwood. 
So all the way uptown in Manhattan. And Bryce was there. So Bryce, Bryce and Basilio were, I think they were best friends at the time. And um, Bryce came up to us and said, hey, by the way, you know, I don't know if you heard, but Basilio's in the hospital. He had this accident, but he's feeling better. You know, he's walking around. And they said he was talking. He hit his head and he was kind of just telling us that there was like maybe brain injuries or something like that. But he seemed okay. So Bryce was telling me, well, I'm going to go stop in just because, you know, he and I are tight like that. But you know, maybe you guys shouldn't all like rush to get there because I think it's okay. But, you know, if you could stop in for a bit just to say, hey, that'd be great. So he went to go to go see him in the hospital. And then it was, I think it was the next day he let us know in a group chat, like, hey, things are not looking good. So he, he was walking around. He was making jokes with his um, his girlfriend at the time, Samantha, and um, and his mom was there as well. And then he uh, kind of went into a coma and like was unresponsive. So he was just on the hospital bed, unresponsive. And Bryce was saying, you know, well, I'll keep you posted. Um, we're really just not sure what's happening. You know, we should maybe we should go see him, but he's you know he's not doing well. And then I think it was the same night they basically said, you know, they he's like in this coma. And they're they're not sure if he's going to come out of it. He's on life support right now, um, but that's the only thing keeping him alive. He had some sort of brain bleed or something. There's something happened. Um, the trauma in his head caused some brain damage, and he just was essentially what they were saying was brain dead, um, and he wouldn't come out of it. So he said, you know, you guys, if you guys want to come, like the the family is saying, like, you know, this is the, the time to say goodbye to your friends. So um, I remember I went up and uh, he was in, what's the big hospital in Manhattan? You know, it's not Mercy don't, Pavilion. It's I um, Sorry, I don't know my Manhattan geography. Um, but yeah, so he's he's in this uh, in the big hospital in Manhattan, and um, so we go up, and he's on the hospital bed. His head's all wrapped up. He's hooked up to a bunch of tubes. He has a, a ventilator helping him breathe, and um, there's a line of people. It's like all the parkour people in the entire city of New York mm-hmm. has come to to pay their respects, and I got up there and. I didn't know what to say. You know, I, I grabbed his hands and I held it and it was still warm. I remember feeling it. It was, he was still alive at the time. And I just, uh, I wished him luck. And then we all left. And then the doctor came out and said, you know, the Janet, his, his mother doesn't want anyone in the room right now, obviously. So we all just sat out in this lobby area outside of his room and they closed the curtain and they took the tubes out and turned the machine off. And I just remember hearing his, his mom and his cousin, just or his sister, just crying and weeping. And we all just sat down on the floor and cried. And <laughs> yeah, so that was a, that was a really rough time. And uh, to this day, I think it's, it's really rocked our community. It's changed a lot of the way that we view parkour because the narrative for a long time is that parkour is, I mean, he wasn't, technically doing parkour but he was a parkour athlete he was a coach and the narrative for a long time is like it's safe no one ever gets hurt doing this like no one we know has ever gotten hurt doing this but we can't say that anymore really it's it's not true and uh going to the the funeral there was a a funeral in queens where he was buried and it was hearing people tell these these vibrant funny stories about him and then just the the dichotomy of reflecting like that's gone now you know, we can, we can joke about the, the wing incident where he was throwing up on the streets with Jesse and 
I can think about the last time I trained with him at zoo where I filmed this line of him. And I remember I put that line in a video that came out after, after his funeral. And it was, it was very scary. It was a scary moment because I remember when I had that in the the clip in my comp, I was thinking to myself, like, should I, like, is it disrespectful to do this? Like, should I, should I do it? And I decided, you know, I'm going to do it. And, um, I chose this song and the title was, uh, we always think there's going to be more time. And that's what I named the the video in honor of him. And the video was, was for him. But, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's my story. Sorry for, sorry for the sadness. No, thank you very much for sharing. And of course the final question, three words to describe your practice. Hmm. You know, I thought about this before, before this, I, cause I was listening to your it's podcast thing, and I was right, thinking, right. you know, what am I going to say for this? <laughs> going around our, our entire conversation, um, especially around the, the culture of struggle and like, you know, and, and efforts. I think what I would say for, for my three words is embrace the suck, not in like a dirty way, you know, in like a, you know, just lean into being bad at something because you know, you're, you're not going to be good at everything that you try the first time. And I certainly wasn't for parkour or for photos or video or anything. You know, it, it took a lot of time for me to get good. And I think you just need to embrace that and enjoy it. I mean, it's going to be frustrating. It's going to be terrible. You're going to hate doing parkour. You're going to hate other athletes. You're going to hate the mm. obstacles. You're going to blame other people and other things. And it's slippery or I'm tired or I'm sore, but, uh, you should really just embrace because it's part of the process. And I think part of the reason why I love parkour so much is because I have sweat and blood and tears right. to prove that it's been, you know, an 11 year long journey of me just struggling my way through this and, and being happy with some movements and being unhappy with others. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, I'm, I have some of the best friends of my life through this movements and I've seen things and travel places I never would have gone had I not been connected to these amazing individuals and amazing athletes. And, uh, I think just really, you can't skip that part of the process. There's no shortcuts. Really. You have to, you have to embrace it and you have to work through it. And eventually there's a light at the end of the tunnel where you're going to be satisfied with your movement, but there's still going to be days, even when you, even the best of athletes at the top level are going to have off days where they feel like terrible. But the, the beauty of parkour is just figuring out the process to get through that and find a way to be happy with your movement. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Craig. This was episode 52. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 52. There's more to the Movers Mindset Project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content, to sign up for our newsletter, or to read about how you can support this project. And I'll leave you with a final thought from Marcus Aurelius. Death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. Thanks for listening.